Well, good morning, Woodside. How are you? And good morning online. If you're on a boat somewhere or up north, we are happy for you. And uh, we're glad you're joining us online as well. Um, We're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Before we do, I just want to, again, my brother John already acknowledged this Memorial Day. We're praying for any of you here or online, uh, you know, that you have family members, close loved ones. I've had a number of conversations this morning uh, of those who have family and friends or close loved ones that have paid the ultimate price for our freedom. And we, we remember that today with you, and we're praying for you today, as this might be a different weekend for you, as the rest of us are sitting on our back porches and grilling and having a great weekend. For you, it might be uh, a sad weekend, as you remember. And so we love you. We're praying for you. Please let us know if you need anything as you walk through that I also want to speak, again, just for a moment uh, to the tragedy of this last week in Uvalde, Texas. And uh, just for a couple of reasons, A, uh, man, I just want to uh, update you. Uh, When things like this, a lot of times Woodside wants to figure out what can we do, how can we be a part of that. And uh, we have a a fund within our budget that is for extreme response uh, type of things. And so this last week, uh, um, our missions, executive missions pastor, uh, Don was able to send some money as a partner church down there, First Baptist Church in Uvalde, and have a connection with them, send them some resources, some finances to be able to come alongside of all the tragedy that's happening there, and that's because of your generosity. So it just gives me an opportunity, again, to say thank you. Your, your general giving and what you give towards the church here is able to help in a lot of these different ways. Uh, um, in Ukraine, even the last couple months, I mean, we spent a large amount of money to there uh, to be able to help with those coming outside of the countries in the bordering countries there as well. And you guys are a part of that because of your generosity and your faithfulness uh, to the church here. And then I just want to press you to, uh, in this in this coming weeks, uh, man, love on people around you. Uh, specifically, man, if, you, if your kids are part of a, a school, love on your teachers. Let them know you're there for you. They're praying for you. You're walking with them. I know for a number of staff, uh, in, in the Oxford community after the tragedy in November. Um, uh, they go to our campus. I've been in communication with them this week. This is a hard thing for them as they walk through this and rewalk through it again. Just uh, be there for people. I can't say enough in these moments. As followers of Jesus, be empathetic. We, will, we weep with those who weep. And, and, um, and this isn't a time for arguing. It's a time for love and loving people around us as people have uh, went, went to school or sent their kid to school and came home and they're nine and ten year old wasn't with them and I looked at my nine and ten year old this week and was reminded of what other people are going through let that set into our own hearts may that cause us to to move forward in prayer and love and connecting with those around us in profound ways while you may not be able to uh, connect with those uh, down in Texas you can with those closest to you and around you and be in the hands and feet of Christ so Today, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2. Last week, we started in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation, knowing who we are as humanity. All human beings, no matter what we are, no matter, no, no matter where we, call, where we uh, find ourselves, every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. Every human being. And I, I had a lot of a conversation based on last week's sermon, and I just want to put it out there. If you have some questions... Or, man, man, you said something, Jim, I want to have a further conversation about that. I'm always here to have conversation. You can call me uh, at our office. You can reach out to me. I'm always willing. I would love to sit down, have further conversation with you around uh, what we talked about last week or any given week, for that matter. If you want to just call and tell me I'm a heretic, that's cool, too. Um, you know, I'm open. Come have a conversation. 
always uh, would love to have a conversation with you no matter what uh, we, we preach about God on any given Sunday. And today we're going to be entering into Genesis chapter 2, going back to Adam and Eve in a significant moment in the first family to see, to see what it looks like for us as we move forward as a community in the first family conflict. Uh, I don't know about you, but my family has plenty of conflicts. Anybody with me? Okay, sweet. Two people online, I think, just raised their hands. And me, we got a broken family. The rest of y'all are perfect. I'd love to have a couple mentors come see me. Uh, my family's broken. It's got conflict. And in our first kind of family conflict here in Adam and Eve, in the fall of man, is where we're going to see in Genesis chapter 2, uh, we're going to enter into their first family conflict together and see how it might impact our own lives. And it's interesting um, as followers of Jesus, as people within the church, we generally know we were made for community. You know that, right? You were not made for isolation. You were not made to do it on your own. Almost every epistle in the New Testament is written to a church community. I mean, uh, the least common denominator ever sent out, Jesus sent people out never on their own into from the very beginning, as we'll see this morning, it wasn't good for one person, so God made another because we are made in the image and likeness of God. And part of that image and likeness of God is God has been living for all of eternity in perfect communal relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and he creates us in his image. So why then would he create us as individuals, not for community? We were made in his image, so therefore we're made for community. And I want to say this because we're living in one of the most highly individualistic cultures of our time. And you weren't made for that. You were made for a communal relationship. And we know that, but on the other hand, we also know that, man, when we enter into relationships, often the people that harm us the most are who? Those closest to us our closest friends, our closest companionships. So we know that there's a lot of pain in community as well, right? Inevitably, we're going to get hurt, right? We need people in our lives, but people hurt us. They disappoint us. They betray us. And um, sometimes they leave us all together. It's interesting. As a pastor, I deal with this quite a bit. Um, just inner, inner community relationships, for sure. Whether that's in a small group, a marriage, a family, just friends within the church, neighbors, whatever it may be. And usually I get a number of different complaints within the church. Not this church. We never get complaints here. It's just awesome, right? But the complaint is, is many times very similar and they're related, right? And on the one hand, people come and they lament. They say, I'm lonely in this place. Uh, man, I tend here, but I don't have any community here. I don't have anyone that's close with me. And I'm often like, hey, are you in a community group? Are you, are you in, a, in a small group? Are, are, are you vitally a part of the church? Are you serving? Are you involved at all, right? And we're pressing. Sometimes people have the reasons why they're not. It's usually the, the next thing that I often get. On the other hand, it's people that complain like, man, I've got community. I've been here, but it's hard, man. I've got some hurt. The last uh, small group, if you will, I was in, I shared my heart and people betrayed me. They shared things they weren't supposed to. And man, there's somebody or something has wounded you, right? And man, one group can't find community, and the other group doesn't want to find community. All the while, we know that we need deep, profound community to walk through life together because we're made for it. And there's this push and pull always that we know that we're made for, but at the same time, it's challenging. 
It's part of the reason why our series is called Family, Why Bother? Right? Family, looking at family within the Word of God, many times, it's interesting when you look at it, you're like, man, why bother? There's so much brokenness. There's so much hurt. It's different. It's unique. It's challenging. And what we always want to press back into is it's worth it because you were created for it. You don't have to stay in conflict like we're going to see today. You can move forward if we will, but follow the ways of Jesus and the ways that God has pressed or excuse me, put forth for us to walk in. So today we're going to look at the first family, Adam and Eve, one of the fun stories. And in all of this, I want you to say you were, see that you were made for community, but sin separates us. It's broken us. At the end of the day, know that you are made for community, but what makes it challenging, what makes it hard is the fact that sin is involved in your marriage. Sin is involved in your family. Sin is involved in your relationship with your neighbor. Sin is involved with your best friends. Sin is involved in your small group, unfortunately. And because of that, it often shatters relationships as we're going to see. As we look at, it also it interrupts our relationship with God and interrupts our relationship with other people as we move forward. So as we look at Adam and Eve, I'm just going to kind of cover a lot in the, in the beginning just by sharing story because we don't have time to read it all. But I think it's, it's relevant for us to know the backstory, right? So we, we, we talked a little bit about it last week. So in Genesis 1, God is there creating this magnificent masterpiece over and over again. Like it's good as he creates one day. It's good. It's good. And he keeps going on. And he wants you to know that God's masterpiece is of ultimate glory. It's good. Every day he's done, God's sitting back like Bob Ross. Man, ain't that good? It's awesome. Put some happy trees over there, you know, and. At the end of the day, this is God. He's looking at his masterpiece every day. Man, that's good. That's good. That's good. It's amazing, right? And I shared this with you last week and many other times. Then we get this, this moment where he says in, in just one text, after he's created Adam, he, he says, man, it's not good that he's alone. And he's doing that. The writer isn't doing that by chance. It's not like, oh, man, I didn't know I put five goods and then a not good. That's so weird. No, he did it on purpose to draw his attention already from the very beginning that we're not meant to live in isolation as a recluse or be lonely. We're meant for community. God's saying, man, Adam is perfect the way I created him. From the dust of the ground, I breathe life into him. But it's not good yet. He's not, he's not, he's not good. He's, he's alone. He's not completely in my image, right? And so we, we talked about this last week as, as, as Adam is there and he sees Eve and he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. We shall be, she shall be called woman because she has taken out of man. And Adam just got done naming all the animals and then he names Eve woman. It's amazing and profound. His, his profound compassion and love for her to see, right? If we were to say, man, this, is, this person is my relative. We're like, man, this is my blood. We're of the same blood. But it's interesting when you look back in the ancient world, they didn't say it like that. What they would have said is they would have said that they have the same bone and flesh. And so in a moment, Adam is literally saying, Eve, you are, you are of my blood. We are one. We are, we are together in this. And in a moment, we see this marriage bond of relationship that, can, that is the very first marriage in the scriptures. And it's perfect, and it's amazing. And he says, man, she should be called woman. And in essence, he's saying, Man, she is mine, and I am hers. We are one. Man, woman, bone of bone, flesh of flesh. We're of the same kind. We're together, 
And there's profound intimacy and connection and beauty. And it's amazing. And this was God's design all along for healthy community. And, and, and whether you're here today and you're married, if you're watching online, if you're married, or if you never get married, you're still built for profound friendship and partnership and companionship and family. God made you that way from the beginning. That's amazing. You look at, look at Adam and Eve originally, what they experienced That's what they were made for, perfection and intimacy together. But unfortunately, something happens. There's a sin that enters in that shatters what they experience, and that's what we're going to look at today. That's why I say you have to get all this backstory, because they had this beauty and intimacy, and I want you to see that, and they're bone of bone and flesh of flesh, and they are are together, and they're the same, and they walk with God in the cool of the day and with one another, and they experience unbelievable joy and perfection. And then... What we're going to look at is how sin separates us from God as well as one another. And what I want you to wrestle with today is this key question. How can we experience reconciliation within relationships? How do we experience reconciliation within relationships? As we look at the next couple of verses, man, I want to see us reverse engineer the story and see how we might be able to take what they've learned, what their experiences was, and may it help us to walk in communal relationships well Walking in reconciliation with one another as God would have us. So let's read uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 6 together and see how we we should be listening to the truth of God's voice. Uh, Here, here look with me in the text in, in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. Significant. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent... We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened, and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Because here, here, just in this text, I want you to see how we're to listen to the truth of God's voice. Rather, the opposite, and many times we're listening to the truth of the opposite voice. So, man, immediately after the marriage, what do we get right after that? Because in Genesis chapter 1, it tells us the, 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 the story of creation. Genesis 2 gets into the details of, of man and woman being created. And then right after this marriage ceremony, we're here in the midst of the garden. Immediately, the scene shifts. There's an exchange between a woman and the serpent there. Eve and the serpent. And I want to just say for a moment, why in the text is she anywhere near that tree? God said, hey, man, don't eat of the tree. You have this whole garden, and the first scene we get is her maybe standing. I have a little bit of imagination. This isn't in the word of God. Of her standing, staring at the tree. I wonder why that tree. We can't eat of it. Serpent. Let me tell you. Why is she so close to the sin in the moment, the temptation, rather than putting up safeguards, not being anywhere near God said not to be a part of? It's interesting. I find myself in the same area of life. Oftentimes in life, why am I in a place where I'm so close to the edge of my temptation or my brokenness rather than saying, man, I don't want to cross this line. I don't want to be a part of this. I should be way over here on the other side of the garden. This is where we find ourselves in the scene as he's there tempting, right? Right? The conversation starts with, did God actually say? You ever heard that in your own mind? 
did God actually say you shouldn't eat of the tree? And notice his craftiness. On the one hand, he's trying to get her question, her to question the word of God, right? His command. On the other hand, he's misquoting what God's word actually was saying to them. God originally told them, eat of every tree. Look at all these trees. Look at all this fruit, this vegetation. It's all for you. Just the one tree. Don't eat of it. See? He originally said, man, don't, don't eat of that one, but you have everything else. And the serpent says, man, did God actually say you shall not eat of it? In a moment, he's trying to shift their mind, as he does with ours oftentimes, shift it to see God as very restrictive rather than a benevolent creator. He's trying to look at it as like, man, look at all the things God is holding you from. He didn't point out, man, look at all the trees, look at all the creation, the beautiful garden that God's created for you. No, in a moment, he wants them to second guess what God has for them, that God is not good because God is trying to hold you back. He's trying to restrict you from that one tree. He's crafty in a moment. And the woman says, she's drawn in a little bit subtly, and she responds, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So the woman corrects the serpent, right? But her herself, she adds this command. Do you remember ever reading that God said not to touch it? Again, it's not true. God simply said, don't eat it. So you, you see how the serpent is luring her in and sowing seeds of doubt and causing her to second guess and question what God has for her and the goodness of God. In a moment, he has her in verse 5 when he says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you shall be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that a true statement? Yeah, the serpent's being, he's actually telling a half truth, but not real truth. He says, you won't surely die. Because in a moment, he knows they won't die. But in a moment when they eat it, they spiritually die. And they will eventually die, which they wouldn't have. So he's telling them half truths. And at the same time, he, he says, man, your eyes will be open to good and evil. Is that true? 100% it's true. Before, they didn't know what evil was. And so he's giving them in this craftiness, this truth mixed with a little bit of a lie, a twisted truth, which is a lie. I'll tell you, there is more going on in Christians' lives today where Satan comes in and he mixes a little bit of truth, a little bit, a little bit of lie, and he twists it and he makes it to our mind. Jim, that's not that big of a deal. Man, doesn't God want you to be happy, Jim? You don't need to stay with your spouse. God wants you to be happy. Well, no, God wants you to be joyful, which only comes from Christ. He never says you're supposed to be happy. Find me one verse in the Bible that says, man, God wants you to be happy. No, he wants you to be filled with joy, which only comes from Christ. And actually, many times the hard choices in life in sticking with your spouse when you don't feel happy is often where joy is experienced. But man, Satan wants to tell me a lie, twist it with a little bit of truth, so I might wonder. In verse 6, then he says, man, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. It was a delight to her eyes and, de and, and desirous for, to be wise, and she ate of it. She was tricked. They refused to trust God, and she gives some to her husband. And, and I'll just tell you, Adam is just sitting by, standing by as a passive husband and a passive male figure in their home. I'll tell you right now, what we have right now in the church is a lot of passive male figures in our homes who, who need to reject passivity, claim responsibility, and walk courageously for the kingdom of God. And we have Adam just standing by watching it happen. He's like, hey, she ate, and uh, man, might as well myself. They refuse to trust God, 
In a moment, their relationship as individuals was broken, as well as the relationship with God was fractured in a moment. It's amazing when you look at it. Because Jesus, when you read in, in Luke, as Jesus is about to go into ministry, what does he do? He's led into the wilderness, right? For 40 days, he's fasting and he's praying and he's being with his father. And many times I'll just say, we wonder like, man, as we enter into like these weeks of like prayer, we're like, hey man, you should fast. And people fast like one day and they're like, I can't do it. Jesus is 40 days in. Just wants to be with his father. He wants to commune with his father before he goes out and he jumps into ministry and all that the father has for him. He needed 40 days with his father to commune with him, to hear the voice of God. We know what happens there is, as he's there spending time with, with, with his father in the wilderness, the devil himself comes to tempt Jesus. It's amazing because the devil's not omnipresent. You've probably individually here never been tempted by the devil Demon, yes, but the powerfulness of the devil is probably uh, for people that are much more important to it than us. And Jesus in a moment has the presence of Satan himself to tempt him in this moment. And it's amazing. He's tempted here with endless provision, a lot of power, and earthly glory, all of which would have allowed him to forego the cross, never die on the cross, and get the same outcome. To bypass the Father's will, to not be obedient, he would be able to get in a moment provision, power, and glory if he would just step in. And he's tempted the exact same way Adam and Eve are with the, with the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And in a moment, Jesus overcomes. Theologically, it's a big deal. Jesus is our new Adam. By one man, sin entered the world. And then by one man, freedom and salvation is given to everyone. Adam got us into sin and Jesus got us out of it. He's the new Adam in a moment. He proves that, but it's more significant, I think, when you look at it. Each time Jesus is tempted, how does he respond? With Scripture. Three times. He responds with, it is written, it is written, it is written. And Jesus succeeds where Adam failed and Eve failed and overcame. This is crucial for us in learning how to walk in freedom, but also in reconciliation as we're talking about. Man, I'll just say, listening to the truth of God's voice is essential, right? Listening and receiving God's word is actually through the gospel, how we're reconciled back to God himself is through the word of God. But I'll tell you, it's not just how we're reconciled through the gospel back to God, it's how we're reconciled back to each other, one another in Christ, right? Because the good news is Jesus died and he rose from the grave and now we're forgiven of all of our sin and we're able to be in renewed relationship with God. But then God makes us agents of reconciliation through the gospel. It changes our whole perspective, right? Because you've experienced endless mercy through the gospel of Jesus, you can extend endless mercy to others. Because you've experienced forgiveness of your brokenness, past, present, and future sin, now you can extend forgiveness to your brothers and sisters in Christ and even those outside of the faith, right? Because God constantly meets us in a new place every single day. As you fail and I fail, we can constantly meet others around us, our spouse, our children, uh, our people in community, our friendships in a new way because we are now agents of reconciliation because we've experienced it through the blood of Jesus. So I want to challenge you Let's feast on the word of God. Is this a part? Is this a priority in your life? 
Right now, I'm hitting on some people. If that is not a priority of your life, how do you plan to overcome the devil? Because you're not better than Jesus. That's why we need to place ourselves under the teaching of the word of God like this. This needs to be a priority of us gathering together. Being in a communal relationship with other people, like a life group, where you can break down the word of God and hold each other accountable, needs to be a priority in your life. The word of God is centric in our walk with the Lord, but it's centric in, in, in the context of a communal relationship with other people as we move forward. Well, if you look in verse 7, as we move forward, man, the, you, you, we are called in this text to set aside false ways of defending ourselves. Look at verse 3 with me. Excuse me, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed, sewed fig trees together and made themselves loincloths. Now, this is one of the, I think, coolest and scariest verses in the Bible. And they heard the sound of God walking in the garden. Can you imagine what that sounds like? They heard God walking in the cool of the day in the garden. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And then he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and hello, I was afraid. That's amazing because he used to walk with God in the cool of the day, and now he's afraid. What happened? Sin. It's shattered, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I had commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave me. That is not a good thing, man. And I will challenge you pretty hard. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, and the woman said, what is this? She said, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. In a moment. So I say, set aside false ways of defending yourself. Do you think that God was really wondering where they were? Did he not know where they were in the garden? Do you think that God really was like, man, um, how do you know that you're naked? Do you, do you think that God really was like, uh, oh, how do you know that? No, God was prying in a moment. There's a change that occurs in the life of Adam and Eve. Their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they took fig leaves to try and cover themselves and make a loincloth, if you will, as it says in the text. As previously, they walked around with nothing on and they were unashamed, made perfect, walking in perfection with God and each other in a moment, this is a sign that something's shifted, something's changed. And now the sin has entered the world and they feel shame for the first time. It's the first shame in the Bible right here. They don't know what to do. Something's shifted in their heart and their soul. Man, every other day we walked with God in the cool of the day. Now for the first time when, God's, when I heard God coming, instead of being ecstatic and overwhelmed and wanting to be with him and, and spend time with him and walk with him, now in a moment for the first time I feel this weirdness in my soul. Shame. I try to hide and cover it up. Can I tell you we do the same thing today? The first sign, I'll tell you right now, of people that are walking in open sin they stop hanging around people that walk with Jesus. 
First sign, if I don't see someone around church and they're not a part of another church that's out there, oftentimes it's a first sign to me that there's some sort of open sinfulness in their lives that they do not want to acknowledge. And every time they sit in here, they feel conviction. Every time they're around you, they feel conviction. Every time they see me in the grocery store, they go two more lines over and try to hide. Because for some reason, I'm supposed to bring conviction? That's weird. But it's something about the people of Jesus that brings this weight of shame with them. And this, their, their relationship with God has been fractured. They're used to being free flow, intimacy with God, walking with him in the cool of the day and one another, and all of a sudden now they're covering up and they're hiding. And when God confronts them, his first address was to Adam. Like, Adam, did you eat of the tree that I, didn't, that I commanded you not to? And I'll tell you, this is the worst response you can make in marriage. He says, the, he doesn't even say Eve. He says, the woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. The first time I've, the only time I've ever raised my voice in my office dealing with a marriage is when I met with an individual, a, a couple, and over and over again, he addressed his wife that way. This woman. I told him like twice, don't say that anymore. And he kept doing it. And, I, and I, it was the first time I raised my voice in the sense that the disrespect is such a level and is not honoring to God. They have a name, they have an individual. And here in a moment, Adam is in self-preservation mode before the God of the universe and he's deflecting, he's defending himself. And, and, and it's horrible. He's pointing the blame to someone else. And then he says, man, this woman you gave me, in a moment, he's using this name to cover up his own reality. He's becoming the blamer. Anybody the blamer in a relationship? Well, you did it, I didn't. Always in our relationships, man, we, we, we need to learn to not walk in this way. Stop blaming others for our own actions and take responsibility. We need to stop defending ourselves within relationships. Well, you look at the woman, she says, man, God asked her, what have you done? And she responds, the serpent deceived me. And so again, there's this, 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 this level of what she's saying is true, what he said is true, but it's mixed in with a lack of humility, a lack of acknowledgement of their own sin, and she now plays the victim. He's blaming, she's the victim. I don't want to take responsibility for my actions. This, 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 this snake you allowed in the garden has deceived me. A man's playing the blamer, a woman's playing the victim. Neither of them are owning their side of their brokenness, and they remain separate and divided. Man points his finger to God. Like, what a place to be. That you point your brokenness and blame it on God. This woman that you gave to be with me. I'll just tell you right now, within your relationship, within your marriage relationship, within your relationships in life, in order to get anywhere towards reconciliation, there is going to have to be a putting away of defending yourself in blaming and playing the victim. I deal with a lot of marriages within the church and outside. Often the ones that, that go south and don't make it or, or are really in struggling, it's because of blaming and playing the victim. I don't have anything to acknowledge. They're broken. I'll just be honest with you. You come meet with me about your marriage, I'm going to tell you you're both broken. And if it's Sarah and I, we're going to say we're both broken. Because you know what? The, the way forward in reconciliation is acknowledgement of your brokenness and stop defending yourself. It's amazing what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. He says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you'll be clear. 
you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So there's a point of taking the speck out of your brother's eye. We've got to take the beam out of our own eyes. Jesus is using hyperbole here to make a point. You're walking around with like a two-by-four in your eye. That's what Jesus is saying. Meanwhile, the, your, your friend, your spouse, your brother has you can't, a speck so small you can't even see, and you can't even point out the speck because you're hitting him upside the head with a two-by-four. That's the gym translation of Matthew chapter 7. That's what Jesus is saying. He's trying to make a massive point. And he's saying, man, the self-protection is so bad that you're trying to point out the little splinter and speck in someone else's eyes. You have this massive thing out of your own eye. And part of the human nature now built into us because of brokenness and sin is an instinct to self-protect, cover up, defend ourselves, and blame others while playing the victim. That is normative in our nature, our sinful brokenness. But man, we need to, to reject that and walk in responsibility. I want you to think about for a moment, maybe not right now because you might not be in any conflicts, but the conflicts you've been in your life or you're in right now maybe in the middle of them, maybe it involves your spouse, your family members, your friends, a coworker, a neighbor, whatever, are you, I just want you to think for a moment and, and analyze your own heart. Are you quicker to criticize, criticize the other person or to examine yourself? Are you more quick to, to criticize what they're doing or are you, are you quicker to analyze your own actions in your own heart? Do you spend most of your time in self-reflection like, man, I got some, some brokenness here? Or do you spend most of your time talking about what they did wrong and how they messed up? Or do you take responsibility in your role in the matter? And just like Adam and Eve, when conflicts happen, harsh things are said. Can you imagine, just for a moment, before the God of the universe, you might have said it in your own, like, marriage counseling session, right, when no one else was around. But you, can you imagine saying to the God of the universe, this woman? You think they had a great intimacy in a relationship after that? Probably not. I would say it fractured it pretty good. But here and now, as we walk everyday life, we are capable of these same defending mechanisms and rather than taking responsibility for our actions. And the way to work through relational conflict, whether it's in your marriage and the deepest relationship you have or just neighbors and friends, at the end of the day, we've got to set aside blaming, playing a victim, and step into the light and be honest with ourselves what part is ours. And that's just from the very beginning. As you look at the Adam, Adam and Eve, and then the most crucial part of all of this is to receive God's provision. It's, it's amazing, the story and what you see at the very end of the story. Um, as Adam and Eve have provision for all that they've done, as God hears them and he hears all this defending, imagine God's just sitting back and they're both like, well, he said, and she said, we probably only get a snippet of it, right? And God's just looking at us like, what a mess did I create? no. From the very beginning, God has grace and mercy in a moment. After he takes some moments and says, hey, I just want to let you know because of there's some ramifications and now the world is going to enter into sin and you're going to be broken. Now, Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to work. And, and, and Eve, now there's going to be pain in childbirth and, and, and life will be broken now moving forward. And eventually you're going to die and you're going to enter into the earth again. And, and, and at the end of this, I love it. In verse 21, it says, then the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. 
Now, this seems insignificant, but it's profoundly significant. Adam and Eve previously made these skimpy loincloths out of leaves trying to cover up their nakedness. And in a moment, God provides a better and fuller way. He, 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 here, he creates amazing covering that comes at a sacrifice of an animal. And to my knowledge, this is maybe the first death in all of Scripture, this, sac- this sacrifice. That an animal died to cover humanity as a sacrifice, as the skin was taken off them to cover Adam and Eve in a moment. And what, what we see is this general thing, that, that an animal died and their skin is covered. In a moment, God is in the, in, in the very beginning tipping his hat to a sacrifice that would ultimately come through the death of Christ that would cover all of humanity now because of the brokenness that happened in Genesis. It's from the very beginning, pointing to the future and saying, man, one day my son is going to die like this animal sacrifice and his blood is going to cover all of your sin and brokenness and shame and you're defending yourself when my son dies on the cross for you and it's going to cover all of that because of your brokenness, your shame, and your inability to follow after me, your inability to walk in obedience. One of the earliest indications of the gospel there is a sacrifice providing ultimate covering through Jesus Christ. And God provides in a moment. It's just, can you imagine this amazing act of mercy? Imagine if you were God, would you be up, would you be there with Adam and Eve and be like, you idiots! We didn't even get through the second generation. You already messed it up. God is so good. In a moment, he shows mercy and grace through the covering of Adam and Eve. It's the good news of the gospel from the very beginning. Through Christ, he's made a way for us to be fully accepted into God's presence. Because in a moment, they were kicked out of the garden. They were unable to walk again with God in the cool of the day. For fear of judgment. And now in a moment, God has tipped his hand to the future of what he would do through Christ that we could walk again. When you get, when you get to heaven one day, I just want to be honest with you, you're not flying around with a crossbow shooting people. You're walking again with God in the cool of the day. The presence of God is there with you, and you're there to be with him. And you know why you're there to be with him? You're back like Adam and Eve. You're covered by the blood and the garments of Jesus in order to be in the presence of God again and walk with him with no shame or no guilt or no brokenness. It's pretty amazing and pretty profound. Here's why it's so important when it comes to relationship conflict. Man, if we're secure of who we are in Christ, what Adam and Eve experienced that was a picture of the future, man, if you're, if you're secure in your walk with the Lord, if you're tracking with Jesus, you've been covered by your past and present and future sin, man, you've been forgiven, you're beloved, you're secure, you're accepted. Can I just tell you, you don't have to win every fight. When you engage with people on social media, you don't have to win every fight. I'll just say it's not the best place to fight at all. You don't have to. You're secure in Christ. You don't have to take every criticism from your family or your spouse or your mom and dad or, 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 or your friends or people at church. You don't have to take every criticism personally. 
You're secure in Christ. You don't have to prove or justify yourself by winning arguments or self-preservation. And you're secure in Christ. You've been free to be honest about your faults. Man, can we be a church that's honest about our faults? Be vulnerable to say, man, I'm, I'm messed up. I try my best to tell you as much as I can up here on this platform that I'm broken and messed up so that one day if I ever mess up big enough, I'm not going to let you down. You're like, yeah, Jim said he was messed up. I just want you to know that I'm broken so you don't see a guy ranting on a stage and be like, man, I could never be like that guy. You could be just like me because I'm broken. I have flaws. I struggle to walk with Jesus sometimes. My wife and I, hello, have conflict in our marriage. Babe, if you're watching online, you can agree to this. Drop a comment. But may we as people, the people of God who are secure in Christ, stop walking like Adam and Eve, blame shifting, playing the victim. Rather, walk in reconciliation. Walk in freedom to be honest about our failures and our brokenness because the gospel of God is that he loves us despite all of our failures and our flaws. And you can walk with others in the same way. Following in the footsteps of Jesus, being like Christ because you are in Christ. I just want to tell you, if there's conflict in your relationships, it doesn't have to be like that. You can walk in freedom without conflict because, not because you're good at it, not because, man, you've got it all together. Quite the opposite, because God is good, Jesus has it all together, and he has freed you in the name of Jesus to walk in reconciliation. And reconciliation, I'll just be honest, sometimes means you may reconcile. You can't, you can't worry about what other people do. You play your part. Man, if you're walking right now, with your spouse in just, a, in just a, a valley, stop worrying and telling your spouse what they need to do for you and do all you can to love them in the name of Jesus the way God called you to. And man, I'll just tell you, see what God, see what God does. See what God does. And you're having struggles with family? You walk like Jesus. Stop blame shifting. Stop playing the victim. Walk in forgiveness and reconciliation. See what God does. What changed the world was not, was not Jesus winning an argument. was not Jesus blame-shifting. What, 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 what won the world is Jesus laying down his life. May we be the same in every human relationship in walking in the name of Jesus. Let's pray together. God, thank you for today, for Memorial Day weekend, that we could just maybe take some moments of rest. May we be reminded today, yes, as we are reminded of the, the men and women that have given their lives for the freedom we have just to sit in this place and worship you today. We thank you, God, for them. At the same time, we, we thank you that you're the ultimate picture of someone who laid in their life for freedom and that we can walk in freedom and relationships and interactions with each other as we walk in the freedom that you have set before us. So God, may we do so out of obedience today, leaving this place, being ministers of reconciliation with one another, learning from the story of Adam and Eve, and walking in freedom.
It's in your great name we pray, Jesus' name. Amen.